Welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Benny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. February is one of my favorite months out of the year. Not only is it my birthday month, it's that time in winter where the sun really starts to come back in a noticeable way. And that just lifts my spirits so much and gives me a lot of hope for um, the months ahead. And here in the United States, it's also Heart Month, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. So on this podcast, we will be featuring heart health related topics for the entire month of February. It's also a great time to think about your own heart health and really a foundational measure of heart health is blood pressure. So for that reason, I am sharing my signature course how to lower your blood pressure naturally at a deeply discounted price for the month of February. So to get access to this course, you can go to carolinemorris.com. It'll be on the homepage. You can also click the link in the show notes. And I put so much love and effort into this course to bring you the best evidence around what can lower your blood pressure naturally, what the research says you can expect. So, you know, how much will each change lower your blood pressure? And I also put a lot of time and attention into guiding you through how to choose which strategies will be best for you, figure out things that you'll actually do and stick with. And then you get a live call with me as a bonus of this course as well. So head on over to carolinemorris.com. Like I said, it's on sale for the entire month of February and the price will go up come March. Hello and welcome to part four of our discussion on heart health for the month of February. This is the last installment of our series, and we are talking about diet. Now, I know you probably have heard that diet is important for heart health, and you may be confused because, frankly, it's a mess with all of the dietary guidelines and conflicting evidence, conflicting opinions, conflicting experiences, and then what can actually work for you. So diet can be hard to implement, even if we do have a good guideline to follow. So what I thought we'd do today is do an overview of the last 50 years of dietary recommendations for heart health to get a sense of the history, where some of the confusion is coming from, 
and then where we are now, where we're headed, and why any of that may or may not matter for you. So I'll also note that I am not a nutritionist. I did have quite a bit of functional nutrition training in the women's health coach certification program I completed, but it's not an academic degree that I hold and I can't provide individual nutritional counseling. But what we can do is go through the research and go through ideas for improving your dietary health. So to go through the history of all of these recommendations, there's a wonderful review article called The Evolution of the Heart-Healthy Diet for Vascular Health, A Walk Through Time. It was published in 2020 in the Vascular Medicine Journal, and I will link it in the show notes. But we will just do a summary of this review to ground ourselves in what has happened so far. So I think it's no secret that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death, and it's gotten a lot of attention for that reason. And so starting in about the 1940s, people were trying to figure out the problem of cardiovascular disease. And I think a lot of it came from when they were doing procedures on patients or autopsies on patients and finding plaques in the arteries and it looked like fat looked like saturated fat in particular there was kind of this idea that oh if you're eating saturated fat that's what's clogging your arteries and then through all of that the recommendations for a low fat diet started to emerge so the first study was in 1948, and it's called the Framingham Heart Study, and it's still an ongoing study where they have recruited people from Framingham, Massachusetts, and followed them over their course of their lives, which is really important work to follow people long term. And actually, just to show you all how nerdy I am, when I was, I think, in PT school out on the weekend and met someone in a bar who was from, he said, oh, I'm from a small town in Massachusetts called Framingham. I was like, you're kidding. You're from Framingham. That's such a cool place. He was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, it's only the most important study in medicine that's from there. And I think he thought I had two heads, but I was excited to meet someone from there. Anyway, so in the initial report out of the Framingham study, they found that people who ate a lot of saturated fat had higher risks of heart disease and stroke. So this is where the diet heart hypothesis came from, which thought that Diet, eating saturated fat and eating cholesterol was the direct link to disease. And in 1977, the U.S. government put out its first statement to address dietary risk, and it was called Dietary Goals in the United States. 
and it stated too much fat, sugar, and salt in the diet can lead to heart disease, cancer, obesity, and stroke. The government's role continued through the 1980s, where the government began making more formal dietary guidelines. And in 1980, the Department of Health and Human Services and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, got together and they put out the first dietary guidelines for Americans. And they have updated it every five years since then. Now, there's a lot of criticism about the USDA's role in creating and disseminating dietary guidelines because they also represent the people who are manufacturing or creating our food. So there's a lot of thought that there's a conflict of interest of that government organization, both essentially creating food or representing those who create food and then telling the rest of us what food to eat. So it's something to keep in mind as you read and listen to guidelines put out by that government agency. So in 1980, the framework put out was focused on a healthy diet or what they considered a healthy diet, which was to eat a variety of foods, including fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and enriched breads, milk, meats, and legumes to maintain a desirable weight. So this was when we were starting to learn that obesity was linked to high blood pressure and an abnormal lipid profile. So high blood lipids, high blood fats in the blood. And the third main aspect, encouraging people to avoid cholesterol and total fat, including saturated fat. They also wanted us to eat foods with adequate starch, replace fat with more carbs, especially carbs like beans, peas, nuts, seeds, fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, instead of the more simpler carbohydrate like a table sugar. And their last recommendation was to limit alcohol and sodium because of the links to high blood pressure. And these guidelines stayed pretty much the same through the 80s and 90s. And in the 90s, what we got to add on top of that is food corporate food corporations really latching onto this low fat idea. And it's now become known as the snack well phenomenon. So those of us old enough to remember snack wells, the brand of of snacks, a lot of cookies, cakes that were marketed as being healthy because they were very low in fat, but really what they were doing was pumping us with a lot of sugar in our diet. And then If you remember, they were very not filling, not satisfying. So we ended up eating a lot more food because it's fat that actually makes us full in our diet. And these were just straight sugary foods, very little fat, very little fiber, which is also important for filling us up. So the thought was this, this approach or this type of food actually encouraged us to eat more calories overall by cutting out the fat and then just pumping us up with carbohydrates. 
1992, we also saw the food pyramid for the first time, which really reinforced the ideas of low fat, high carbohydrate diet. So if you remember the base of the food period, what we were supposed to eat the most of was bread, cereals, rice, and pasta. At that time, they didn't distinguish between whole grains and refined grains. Then it was vegetables, then fruits, and then our sweets and oils at the top. And what ended up happening from the 1980s to the 2000s is instead of decreasing obesity, that we actually saw a big increase in obesity and type 2 diabetes in the United States. Now, we cannot say that it was caused by diet alone or caused by the Snackwell phenomenon or caused by the dietary guidelines, but it is something to observe that something wasn't working at that time. It could also be related to other lifestyle changes of not being as physically active, different technologies coming in, fast food, environmental degradation. There are a lot of things to consider, but I think it's important to note that we didn't get better by the low-fat diet recommendation. And there's an important type of bias when we think about our thoughts and how we approach things that's called anchoring bias. And what that means is we tend to latch on to what we learned first. For example, I learned that a low fat diet was a healthy diet first. That was what was what was thought of when I was a child and young and first learning about diet. So it became hard to let go of that over time because I was so anchored on that piece of information. So if similarly, you first heard of a low fat diet being a heart healthy diet and are having having some resistance to thinking maybe that's not the right approach, just kind of reflect and see if maybe it's an anchoring bias scenario for you as well. Once we got into the new millennium and the 2000s, the low-fat diet started to be challenged, but a lot of us, like I said, with that anchoring bias, have been slow to give it up. And there was a lot of the challenge came from a study in 2006 that found that with a low-fat diet, there wasn't a reduction in the risk for cancer or cardiovascular disease. And then following studies found that Low-fat diets didn't really help us with weight loss when compared to other dietary interventions. In 2011, the U.S. government put out the MyPlate plan, which replaced the food pyramid. It's much simpler. You've probably seen it. It emphasizes fruits, vegetables as being half of the diet, grains and protein being the other half, and dairy It also recommends drinking water instead of sugar-sweetened beverages. The diets that are most popular now, or I should say the diets that are nationally endorsed right now as heart-healthy dietary patterns are the DASH diet, which stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension, 
And we go into this diet in great depth in the how to lower your blood pressure naturally course. The Mediterranean diet is also endorsed. And what's called the healthy vegetarian eating pattern is also is the third and final nationally endorsed heart healthy diet. So the DASH diet includes vegetables, fruits, dairy, whole grains, lean meats, fish, poultry, fish. I said that fish, poultry, beans, and nuts. And one of its key features is that it has emphasis on restricting sodium or our salt intake and its benefits are lower blood pressure, lower of the bad cholesterol levels, and lower risk for heart disease. The Mediterranean diet also emphasizes vegetables, fruits, nuts, legumes, whole grains, extra virgin olive oil, lean meat, fish, and poultry. It limits red meat, processed meat, and sweets, and its health benefits are prevention of cardiovascular disease, both before it starts in the first place or after it started preventing further disease or risks, reducing the risk of mortality from cardiovascular disease, reducing the risk of having a heart attack or stroke, and reducing the risk of death from any cause. That's why a lot of people get very excited about the Mediterranean diet. And the healthy vegetarian eating pattern includes vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, soy products, nuts, low-fat dairy, and seeds. It restricts all meats, poultry, and seafood, so any meat from an animal or fish. And its benefits are lower blood pressure, lower bad cholesterol, lower risk for heart disease. Now, currently, there's some other diets being investigated as being potentially beneficial. And those include the ketogenic diet, which is a high intake of fat and protein with a low restricted intake of carbohydrates, the paleolithic diet. And the premise of that is that we eat like we did, like humans did before agricultural practices were fully in place. So it emphasizes lean meat, fish, vegetables, fruits, roots, eggs, and nuts. It excludes grains, legumes, dairy products, salt, refined sugars, and processed oils. So it's like we're eating like hunters and gatherers again. And intermittent fasting has gotten attention as well. So this isn't so much what we eat, but when we eat it. Now, none of these diets have been nationally endorsed at this time. There is a considerable amount of research going on with them, but not enough for these large national entities to say that we should be doing them. So what do we make of all of this? Because as we can see, the recommendations have evolved over time. So they will probably continue to evolve. And even if we do get agreement on it, it doesn't mean that any of us are actually going to follow these diets to the T. So one way I like to distill some of this information, it helps me 
weed out the noise, so to speak, is to think of it as a continuum. So if we think of different proposed healthy diets on a spectrum of the amount of animal protein in them, so on one end of the spectrum would be a vegan diet, which would be no animal products at all. Then we move to a vegetarian diet, which would be no meat or flesh from an animal. Then into the pescatarian Mediterranean diet, where most of the protein is coming from fish and then some other lean meats in Mediterranean diet. Moving over to a paleo diet, which has more animal proteins, but less carbohydrates, and then all the way to a keto diet, which is a much higher proportion of protein and fat. Now, the way I was taught in the functional nutrition approach in the health coaching program is to remember that when each of these diets is carried out in its best form, its most healthy form, the base is a lot of vegetables. So I've heard some people who follow the ketogenic diet say that they eat more vegetables than most vegetarians, which could be true. They could be eating a lot of vegetables, whereas someone who's a vegetarian, you know, just in essentially in name only could be eating a lot of processed foods that don't have animal products in them, but they're not eating vegetables. So remembering that Vegetables, variety of food are a really strong base for any diet. Fruit, similarly, unsaturated fats. And I guess I should pause to explain what the different types of fats are. So a saturated fat is one that is more solid at room temperature. And then the less saturated a fat is, the more liquid it is at room temperature. What's happening at the chemical level, the molecular level, if you can remember all the way back to your science and chemistry classes, is it has to do with the number of double bonds within the fat molecule. So when there aren't any double bonds, when there are hydrogen atoms, basically in every possible location, that's what's called a saturated fat. So it's saturated with hydrogen. And when it's saturated, the fats molecules can pack together really easily, and it makes it easier for them to form a solid material, which is why they're solid at room temperature. So we can think of butter, lard, shortening. Those are all saturated fats. They're solid at room temperature. Fat on a piece of meat, things like that. Now, as we get more unsaturated, there are more double bonds in those fat molecules, which cause them to kink and they don't stack very neatly. They kind of slide off of each other which is why they are more liquid at room temperature. So our olive oil, even some poultry fats tend to be more slippery. The fats in fish are more oily than solid fat. Same thing with nuts and seeds. Now what happens is in nature, there's only one orientation of the bonds or the, the double bonds for these unsaturated fats. 
and that's called a cis orientation, CIS, which means that essentially if you look at the bond drawn out, it looks like a bay window. So the two, the two big points are in the same direction, whereas a trans bond would look more like a zigzag. So it's just oriented a little bit differently. I can link images to hopefully make it make more sense. The reason why this is important is that you may have heard of trans fats and how dangerous they are. So trans fat is the trans orientation of that double bond. And the way they exist is when we artificially add hydrogen atoms to unsaturated fats to make them more solid. In that process, some of the bonds will be cis bonds, some of the bonds will be trans bonds. So that is why trans fats come from manufactured products that are usually called partially hydrogenated products. And this is things like margarine. So when we've started from an oil, like a vegetable oil, and then made it more solid through a chemical process, one of the side effects is having a proportion of trans fats. And since they don't occur in nature, our body doesn't know what to do with them or how to process them, which is why they can cause so much damage for us. Okay, so thank you for indulging me with the tangent on fat chemical structures. Hopefully that's been a little bit useful for you. Okay, so what do we do with all of this? I've mentioned the term functional nutrition a few times already. And what it means is fundamentally a different approach to nutrition than standard nutrition or medical nutrition. So the Institute for Integrative Nutrition defines it this way. Functional nutrition is the holistic approach to diet, taking into consideration one's lifestyle factors that could affect their food choices, such as activity levels, environment, or the presence of chronic disease. Standard nutrition focuses on the nutritional facts, such as a food or food group's ability to promote or damage health, whether it's, quote, good or bad for you. Functional nutrition looks at these facts, too, but in the context of an individual's physiological makeup and how they live, such as how often they move, the quality of their relationships, and their stress level. Essentially, just because a food or food group has been demonstrated as being, quote, good for you, it doesn't mean it's good for you. Functional nutrition means one size doesn't fit all. And what I'll add to that definition as well is that functional nutrition also takes into account the environment, your genetic makeup, what you ate as a child how well you can actually digest the food. So none of this means anything. You could be putting great nutrients into your body, but if your body can't absorb them, it does. It really doesn't matter. So there's a lot more to consider with nutrition than just the blanket recommendations from big agencies. It's not that we discredit them. They're good information for us. But I think if all of us were to eat the same nationally endorsed diet, we would all have very different outcomes from it. So a lot of that is the work of health coaching where we figure out 
what is going to work for you with your physiology, your history, your environment, your life as it is now. Are you currently rehabilitating from something? Do you have a chronic disease that's using up some of your energy stores? All of that is taken into account, as well as food sensitivities, things of that nature. If you are looking for a dietary plan that helps you figure out your food sensitivities, the one I recommend the most often is called simply The Plan by Lynn Janae Recetis. Now, I have a little bit of an anchoring bias myself towards this one because it was the first elimination plan I came across, the first one I did, and it impacted me very positively, but I also appreciate it because it is faster moving. And what I mean by that is many other elimination plans, elimination diets I've seen to help you figure out your sensitivities would have you eliminate usually the seven most common food sensitivities for a month, three weeks or a month, and then add one back in at a time. So it would be going three or four weeks without gluten, dairy, soy, alcohol, sugar, eggs. Sometimes they have a little bit of variety to them, but that can be very hard for people to sustain and then also hard to structure things back in. Whereas the plan has you add something new in every other day. So you get a little bit quicker of a read on it. And you can figure out foods other than those major food groups that might be bothersome to you. So in summary, there are are a lot of guidelines that exist for a heart healthy diet. They have evolved over time. They will continue to evolve and they all need to be paired with you. So what your body wants and needs at the time, what you'll actually do, what's meaningful for you. And if you need help figuring that out, please feel free to book a strategy call with me. I'm happy to discuss some things you're thinking through with you. And just remember at the base of it, it's a lot of fruits and vegetables. So even if you can just add in one more vegetable or fruit a day, then you'll be nudging yourself in the direction of health. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you listening through this series on heart health and this historical tour of nutrition recommendations. And happy end to February. I'll see you again in March. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. 
with love and gratitude, Caroline.